0: Been frustrated trying to figure out something. You had a yes. Well, wow, that was easy. That was easy. Uh, you've had that problem uh, staring you down. You desperately wanted to to try to get to the end of it. Maybe it was uh, maybe it was a personal thing at your house, or maybe it had something to do with, with work and it was a project. Maybe it was uh, a personal relationship. You know, we we actually have phrases that describe that particular feeling of frustration, of, of, of some kind of, you know, you're in the middle of something and you can't get it done. Uh, there's a, a really old phrase uh, that is uh, trying to push water uphill. I uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's that idea that this is an impossible task. Uh, some of you, maybe you've used the phrase trying to get blood from a turnip before. Uh, probably lots of us have used the phrase beating a dead horse. I have a number of those around my house, or um, or maybe my favorite is I'm just over here banging my head against a wall. I, it, there is this point at, at, of incredible frustration where we feel like we know that there is something to get done. There is something to get accomplished, and I keep trying, and I keep trying, and I keep trying, and I just can't get it done. And we're all just trying to get to this point in life of understanding. But there are distractions and people and sin and problems and even self-inflicted wounds in our lives that keep us from getting to an answer, that keep dragging us down weird paths that we didn't want to be on. And interestingly enough, it was not so different for some incredibly religious people at the very early stages of the ministry of Jesus so if you got your Bibles uh, turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 3 if you don't have a Bible with you there are some that are in the seat backs there in front of you or just grab your smartphone and you can just Google John 3 and we're gonna pick up in verse 22 for a message this morning that I have entitled adventures and missing the point uh, we've all been on that adventure before uh, where uh, I mean, man, we were we were working really hard, but we were. And, but by the time we got to the end of whatever it was that we were working on, we know that we had completely missed the mark, missed the point. We were in a in another field altogether of where we really wanted to be. Now, two weeks ago, the week before Easter, I preached uh, the first half of John chapter 3, and this is where Jesus meets with Nicodemus. We find out from a later passage that He met Nicodemus at night. This was the the teacher of all the teachers of the Jews. This was a a leading kind of ruling elder among the Jewish teachers. And Jesus challenged him to stop relying on his family heritage and on his religious activities to find favor with God. That it wasn't going to be by who you think you are, and it's not going to be by what it is that you think you can accomplish, that God's going to put a gold star by your name in heaven, but rather he challenged Nicodemus, you have to be born again. You have to have a brand new life that is, that is born of the Spirit, and that comes by trusting in Christ uh, for life and for salvation. Right on the heels of that, we pick up here in John chapter 3, verse 22, and I'm going to read down through verse 36. It says, "'After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, where he spent time with them and baptized. John,' now this is John the Baptist, John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water there. And people were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. A little bit later in the story, John is going to get arrested thrown in prison. Eventually, he's going to be executed as a heretic and, and, and a usurper to the throne. In verse 25, then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was, and, and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. And John responded, "'No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease.'" The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure." The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray for a moment. Father, uh, what we don't know, we ask that You'll teach us. Uh, What it is that we don't have to serve You, we pray that You will grant to us. And, Father, what it is that we have not yet been made to look like Jesus in our lives, we pray that You would transform us. Lord, do this by the power of Your Spirit, working through Your authoritative Word in our lives today, so that we will get the point. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here in this passage, uh, we see that uh, Jesus... Uh, after he gets done with Nicodemus on this one particular night, and this one particular conversation, he goes in one direction, and then John the Baptist and his disciples, they wind up going in a different direction. So they're, they're not even geographically near each other at this point. And, and yet, what we find is that John's disciples, uh, as, they, as people are coming after him, uh, John and his disciples are baptizing people. Now, baptism is not something that we even in, invented in the modern era, and it didn't just show up when we see it right here in the gospel narratives when John the Baptist is named John the Baptist, and kind of more literally, he's John the Baptizer. Or, or rather, baptism had been around as a religious practice for many, many centuries, and it was always a sign of repentance. It was a sign of, of eye am coming before the God of the universe, asking Him that that I am trusting in Him, that He has the ability to to change me and to cleanse me. It was always an outward sign of of repentance. And so, John the Baptist and his disciples are baptizing people in this one place where there's a lot of water. And meanwhile, Jesus and His disciples, the people following Him, they have gone in another direction where they're baptizing people. And, And then this dispute, this argument arises between some of the followers of John the Baptist and this one particular Jewish man who probably, re- he probably represents some other Jewish people, and they begin to argue about what it says very literally about purification. And all of the scholars and theologians uh, relatively all agree that what they were arguing about were the ceremonial cleansing rituals that happen in the temple, That when you would come to the temple in order to offer up a sacrifice, there are certain ways that you would wash your hands. The the priests, while they were doing all of the sacrificial work of handling the sacrifices and even those that would handle the Torah, the text, the, the Hebrew scriptures, they would go through these ceremonial and ritualistic cleansings. And so they're arguing about that. And so I want to make this point to you today just to kind of get this kicked off in the right direction. While arguing about trivial issues, Jesus was busy ushering people into the kingdom of God. So they're arguing about something that at this point is a trivial issue while Jesus is over there ushering people into a relationship with him and ushering people into a salvific moment where they're going to enter into the kingdom of God. They're arguing about ceremonial washing that is necessary at the temple, but here's the thing. They're not at the temple. They're nowhere near the temple. They're not in the middle of a service at the temple. As a matter of fact, meanwhile, while they're arguing about ritualistic bathing that happens at the temple, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus the Messiah, the Savior that everybody's been waiting on who would end the whole sacrificial system is actually on the earth. Like, they recently came in contact with him, and he's busy baptizing people and introducing them to new life that he can give them, but these guys are now arguing about something that doesn't even matter anymore. So let me ask you a question that I had to ask myself while I'm studying this passage. What is it that we argue about? What is it that we get all hyped up and ramped up and revved up about, not just like, I mean, one is with each other, but even within the confines of your own heart, what is it that starts to take precedence in your life where you begin to go down this path of an adventure of missing the point? Because Jesus has arrived, but think about all the things that are vying, not just for your attention, but for your allegiance. And so, our very flesh desires pleasure. We desire to be first. We desire to be noticed. We desire for everybody to to know about us and for everybody to understand that they need to feel the gravitational pull of the universe toward us because didn't you know that I'm the center of the universe? Don't you feel the pull in this direction? I mean, I should be the one who gets all of the attention. And and so, we we begin to... uh, to go on this adventure of missing the point because we think all of life is about pleasing me. Uh, We get caught up in power, we get caught up in possessions, we get caught up in reputation, and we go on this adventure of missing the point that Jesus has arrived on the earth so that people can be saved. And so if people could wind up on that misadventure while Jesus is standing on the earth, then just think about how often we get caught up in it as well. Now, what I find to be fascinating uh, of, in this passage is that these guys are arguing about ritualistic cleansing at the temple, and they come to John, ar- having argued about it, and they say to him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who is with you across the Jordan is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. I mean, this is stated in a way like, John, isn't this a problem? Isn't everybody supposed to come to us? I mean, we're the ones who have figured out this whole ritualistic cleansing thing. I mean, we're, we're setting this Jewish guy right already, and so now I, don't, you, don't you want everybody to come with us? And John completely ignores their arguments over trivial issues. He completely ignores that whole thing. And instead, what he gives to them in his following statements, I think, are four antidotes to our petty arguments, four antidotes to our misadventures, four antidotes that when we get stuck arguing about the wrong stuff, both internally and externally with each other, John gives to them four antidotes for this. The first antidote is the antidote of joy. Here in verses 27 through 29, he explains to them that there's something to be more joyful about than winning the theological argument. John responded, "...no one can receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven." You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend, who stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. John does not find joy that people are following him. John finds joy that people are following Jesus. He says, this is the one that I wanted you to know about to begin with. He's the one who is actually the groom who has come for his bride and his people. This, the Bible describes this time and time again that we are the bride of Christ. We are the ones that we, we're going to celebrate one day in what is pictured as a marriage supper, a big banquet in heaven that is going to be put on of a celebration when we all get there when, when God closes the books on history. And he says, that this is where my joy is made complete, is that I get, I've gotten to see the groom show up, that I know that he's captured the heart of his bride. He, John, is joyful that people are following Jesus and that people are hearing the words of Jesus. And so where does our joy, where is the center point of your joy? Uh, What is it that that when it tested, you know that joy is still anchored in your life? Uh, Where is it that you find satisfaction and happiness? Is it with the temporary stuff of the world? Is it in in winning and and making sure that somebody else is, is losing? Is it in the midst of making sure that all of the preferences and all the things were set just the way you wanted them? Or is our ultimate joy always rooted in the idea that, that the groom has shown up and people are going to him? One of the great British preachers, Martin Lloyd-Jones, once said, "'I'm not asking whether you know things about Jesus, but do you know Jesus?' Are you enjoying Jesus? Is Jesus the center of your life, the soul of your being, the source of your greatest joy? He is meant to be that. Is, can you point to Christ and say, this is where my joy is made complete? We constantly are fighting for our rights while Jesus is constantly trying to deliver joy into our lives because of what he has accomplished in us and what he is accomplishing in others. The antidote of joy. The second antidote that John the Baptist gives is the antidote of humility. Joy is that, that idea that we, are, we find our greatest happiness, we find our greatest satisfaction, that Jesus is having hearts won over to him. But the second one of humility we see here in verse 30, where John the Baptist, the last of all the prophets, says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Getting to the point that Jesus is Lord means that you are happy and willing and often you bow down low. That you don't need the reputation. You want Jesus to have the reputation of fame. That it's not that you need people to see us, it's that we need everybody to see Jesus. <laughs> it's not that we want people to know what it is that we have, whether it's religiously or morally or ethically. Uh, in our own personal lives, we want people to know who Jesus is. Even as a church body, it's not that we need people to be impressed by what it is that we do, we want people to be impressed by who Jesus is. And so we can stop worrying about whether or not people know us, whether or not people are impressed by us, whether or not people need us. Because people don't need to know us, be impressed by us, or need us. Uh, What we want is for people to know Jesus, be impressed by Jesus, and understand that they need Jesus. John the Baptist said, I need to decrease so that he can increase, so that his reputation can be bigger and bigger and bigger. And so instead of pushing for position, we just let Jesus give us life and we are utterly satisfied in it. Rather than worrying about safety and security, we embrace mercy and grace and mission. And so the antidote of joy? The antidote of humility. And then I think he gives a little bit lengthier statement about an antidote of worship. An antidote of worship. When you're joyful that that people are going after Jesus, that they are surrendering their lives to Jesus, that they're being counted among the bride of Jesus, and when you engage the antidote of humility, that you don't need the fame and the reputation, you want Jesus to have it. Well, then worship is a very natural outworking of that. Look at verses 31 through 35. He says, "'The one who comes from above is above all. "'The one who is from the earth is earthly "'and speaks in earthly terms. "'The one who comes from heaven is above all. "'He testifies to what he has seen and heard, "'and yet no one accepts his testimony.'" So he's speaking about the rejection that people made of Jesus. "'The one who has accepted his testimony,' "...has affirmed that God is true, for the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since He gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands." John the Baptist at this moment is, is you know very slyly saying, guys, you're arguing about bathing While Jesus is the king of the universe, you guys are arguing about a little trivial, ritualistic, third-tier, tertiary issue of religion, and you're not paying attention to the fact that the Lamb of God has arrived in order to sacrifice his life for us. It is recognizing that the authority of Jesus should override everything else in our life and that we should stop wanting to be dazzled by deep ponderings and, and by, you know, enhanced experiences, but instead that all we want is Jesus. All we want is to worship Christ. It's not that we need anything to impress us. We don't need to be religiously entertained. We don't need performances. We don't need anything else. What we want is Jesus and Him alone. We want to be able to be just utterly astounded and in awe of the grandeur and the glory and the beauty of who Jesus is, and that's where we want to get caught up in. We don't want to have to worry about all of these other earthly things because John says, think about who it is that has arrived. He is saying to his disciples, "Look, think about who it is that everybody's going after. I've already told you, I'm not the guy. I'm just the guy pointing to the guy. He says, because he's the one who comes from above. And so he speaks of the wisdom of above. And he testifies about what he has seen and heard. He has seen and heard the glories of heaven. He has stood in the throne room of eternity. Jesus is the one who was there and was, and was active in the creation of the universe. He has seen everything. He's the one who has been affirmed as absolutely true. When he speaks, it is God's words. He is the one who, who abides and relates with the Holy Spirit without any boundary markers or any measures. And it says there in verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Jesus has all the power and all the authority. Jesus has got Everything in his hands. Now I know every once in a while I pull out some tricky Greek or Hebrew word, some you know, tense that, that says, Oh, well, you know, our, our English translation fails us at this point. This is where one our English language does not fail us. When it says that that the Father has given all things into his hands, it means all things. It means everything. Jesus has all the power and all the authority. Everything is in the hand of Jesus, including you and me. Jesus is our king and our authority, and Jesus is a good king who is worthy to be worshipped, who is worthy to have our hearts abandoned over to him, who is worthy for us not to feel like we need to be embarrassed or we need to pull back or somehow we need to you know, not give everything because i got to hold off some things because I want to make sure that I enjoy life for a while. I mean, how silly of a thought is it that we run through that we want Jesus to save our eternal soul, something that is going to last for millions, billions, trillions, quadrillions, quintillion years from henceforth. We want Him to save that, but I got about a hundred years here on the earth that I need to be in charge of. I want to make my own decisions. I want to pick my own vices. I want to decide whether or not I'm going to be virtuous. I want to decide whether or not I'm going to witness to that person, say, you know, be kind to that person, be compassionate to that person. I mean, how, how utterly silly and childish is that, that we want God to save our soul that is going to last for the millions, billions, trillions, quintillion, quintillion, however many years, through all of eternity— but like this week on Monday, I want to make sure that if I want to be mad at some knucklehead in traffic, I get to be mad. That if, that if I want to give in to that particular sin on Tuesday afternoon, I ought to have that right. That if I want to make sure that I have it my way, that everybody understands that I'm the one who needs to get it my way. When the king of the universe says, I, hey guys, I wanted to save your soul and transform your life. And it ought to drive us that everything we want and everything we desire should be to give Him worship and praise. He deserves our worship in our personal lives and in our public affirmations of Him. And so John gives us the antidotes of joy, of humility, and worship. And then finally, the fourth antidote he gives us is that of surrender. Surrender. This is the ultimate antidote. This is the one that makes all the other antidotes work. It's the antidote of surrender. It is needed and necessary. Right here in verse 36, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. It's very plain. Believing in Jesus results in eternal life. This is what you get. If you trust in Christ, if you trust in the work of Christ, if you trust Him, you you get, without any work on your own, you get eternal life. But rejecting Him, and I want you to notice the way John states it, and he who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. I said this before very recently. It is not that your life right now is in some neutral spiritual position that you can decide later. If if you have rejected Jesus, if you don't have a faith relationship in Jesus right now, the wrath of God... Because of sin is on you. It's not that one day you're going to die and then the wrath of God comes. Right now, you are suffering under the wrath of God. And it's, it's right and it's just because our sin offends the rightful ruler of the universe. And so already we are under judgment. But if you trust in Christ, then Christ removes and he wipes out the slate and he pays the ransom for your sin and he stands in your place. He is what the Bible describes as an atoning sacrifice. He pays your debt. And so rather than demanding more of our way, maybe we should just surrender and receive more of his life. While we're working so hard and so diligently on little third-tier issues, Jesus is trying to put you in a position so that you can inherit eternal life. So while we're arguing about trivial issues, Jesus is busy saving people. That's what's happening. I mean, we get caught up in the same position as the disciples of John the Baptist and the Jewish guy who wanted to argue about ceremonial washing. While we're arguing about trivial issues, Jesus is busy saving people. While we're busy trying to convert people to our political party, while we're busy trying to get everybody in the HOA to to agree with us about hedges need to be trimmed, uh, while we're the guy at work or the gal at work that is arguing with people about how a project ought to be done, while we are busy trying to build our reputation and make sure that everybody is impressed by us, Jesus is busy saving people. And maybe, just maybe, we should drop the facade that everybody ought to be impressed by us and by our knowledge and by our wit and by our wisdom and by our humor and by whatever it is that we can do, and we ought to start pointing people to Jesus. We should never demand that anybody's resources should ever be used for the building up of me, our lives, our entertainment, our, uh, our accolades. Uh, it, it, that shouldn't happen in the world. It shouldn't happen at home. It shouldn't happen in the church. It shouldn't happen anywhere. But instead, that we would be satisfied, joyful, happy, humble worshipers that are surrendering to Christ, glad that Luke chapter 19, verse 10 is being fulfilled, where it says, from the very lips of Jesus, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. This is what Jesus said that he came for, to seek and to save the lost. And when we find ourselves wrapped up, revved up, absolutely just caught up In the adventure of missing the point when it's something else, then we just need to be reminded that we should be joyful that the groom has come for his bride. We should be humble that Jesus' reputation is increasing so far above my own, that we should be worshipful that he's the king of the universe and he deserves our singing and our praising and our praying and our study, and we should be happy to surrender to him because He is the very source of our life. Let's pray together.